Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Monday, July 13th. New home sales are up. Dr. Fauci's standing with the White House is down. And we're focused on the battle over reopening schools. So we're now just weeks away from the new school year starting in certain states, but are getting further and further away from a national consensus on if and how schools should reopen. On one side is President Trump getting more and more vocal about how schools must reopen for in-person classes, almost without exception. He's joined on that by U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who appeared on the Sunday talk shows yesterday, but basically dodged questions about lots of the practical issues being raised by people on the other side. And those people are teachers, school staff, school administrators, and others who are very worried about their safety and that of their students and the family members of those students. A lot of this comes down to the science of kids as asymptomatic spreaders. And unfortunately, the reports there are inconsistent and inconclusive. What we do know for sure, though, is that Washington, D.C. didn't really begin digging into this issue until way too late, seemingly assuming that the virus would just abate by the fall. Now, something all of us want, namely kids to go to school and to do so safely, has become politicized. Not only does that put a generation's education at risk, but it also exacerbates our economic difficulties, as it's hard for many parents to go to work if their kids are stuck at home. To go deeper, we are joined by Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, to get a better understanding of where we are and where we're going. We're joined now by Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. So, Randy, I assume you watched Betsy DeVos on the Sunday talk shows yesterday morning. If so, your initial reaction to those interviews was what? I got really angry. Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump are creating and have created a really chaotic situation in the last few days. And I think they've intended it to try to distract. But I don't care if they're reckless about the people who go to their rallies. I really care if they're reckless about teachers and students. And that's what they're being right now. We have been planning for reopening, not whether to reopen, but how, since April. We put out our first report in April. The AASA, the superintendents did something very similar. The chiefs did something similar. Republican and Democratic administrations alike When you have a national emergency, the Department of Education brings people together, they create a clearinghouse. Yes, they're not the national school board, and they help. And Betsy DeVos doesn't help people, doesn't have a plan, doesn't offer any money. And you could see from the way in which she talked, she had no idea what she was talking about. She can't figure out how Florida is going to be different than New York. She doesn't understand the safety issues. I've heard a lot of folks say, if we could send money to businesses and bail out Main Street, why can't we do the same thing with schools? Part of it's obviously a budgetary issue. But even if school districts had all the money in the world right now, does that still solve some of the much more pragmatic issues that money itself might not be able to solve? No. I mean, you need both money and a plan. This is an unprecedented situation. And when people are talking about money, Dan, they're talking about the following. We live within state budgets. So when states are going to cut their budgets by 20%, that's where most of the school aid comes from. So that means 
fewer teachers, fewer paraprofessionals, fewer school courses, fewer digital materials, fewer guidance counselors. So even if we had a perfect situation now, meaning there was no COVID and we just had a 20% budget cut, you would have a huge problem in terms of opening schools with the services that kids need, particularly given that they just lost three months of school. That's number one. On top of that, given COVID, you need to have the things that stop the transmission of a silent virus in a school. Are we too late on that? So you think of things like possibly plexiglass, either between desks or between teachers. You think of things like better ventilation systems for particularly older schools with old HVAC. Are we too late for that? Certain schools open in two weeks. No, we may be too late. This is, so again, my anger. If a union could start planning in April, where the heck was Betsy DeVos? Like, where was she? Like, how come she did nothing? Having said that, you can still plan in terms of the spacing, the mass, the cleaning. You can open windows. You can have fans in there. Are there long-term issues that this exposes? Absolutely. Food insecurity. We basically feed 30 million of our kids. The infrastructure crumbling. So I'm saying those things we're going to have to deal with. But in terms of trying to create confidence for kids and teachers and families, we could do a hybrid model of some kids in school at one time and other kids in school at another time, because it's important for us to see our kids and our kids to actually not be so socially isolated. When you say hybrid model, do you support the idea of effectively putting cameras in the classroom so kids at home can interact and watch the lessons, but without being physically there? That's one of the models. When I talk hybrid, there's many different models that are being batted about. When I talk hybrid, I mean that kids are effectively in school full time, but some of it is in their homes and some of it is in school. One of the ways to do it is what you just said in terms of cameras in the classroom. I'm not sure that that works effectively. I think what works effectively, which is much more burdensome on teachers, by the way, is you do certain things when kids are together in school and other things when they're home. So one of the models I happen to like is a teamwork approach so that all the second grade teachers are working together. So say three are in school and two are at home. And so they're doing different things when they're in school versus when they're at home. This really works at a high school level, but we have to make it work at an elementary school level as well. From speaking to some administrators, one of the things they say is that any significant change, whether it be deciding on how to do a certain hybrid model or other changes, ultimately they do need to often negotiate that or at least get the okay from their local teachers union. Given we are getting so close to the school year, how reasonable do you think it is that administrators and unions are going to be able to agree on some of these things? We've had hundreds of our leaders on these kind of Zoom collective bargaining webinars where we've raised these issues. It's an unprecedented situation. We have to work together. Collective bargaining is about problem solving. Fair way, good for kids, fair for teachers, but it's about problem solving. 
Have you surveyed your members to get a sense on how many don't want to go back to the classroom? I understand, again, every situation is different. Obviously, age of teacher, possible comorbidities, et cetera. What are you learning? We had a big survey go out to our members. We have 1.7 million members. So we didn't survey every single one of the 1.7 million. We did a random basis. Basically, the majority wanted or thought that a hybrid model, bringing kids in school, was the right thing to do. You had about a third who said, "Mm, I'm not sure. And then when we talked about specific safeguards that we thought we needed, like masks and the spacing, cleaning, ventilation, and also assuring both staff and students that if they needed a reasonable accommodation, they could get one. 76% of our members said that they were confident about that. 76%. This is my fear. Because DeVos and Trump just wanted to create chaos and division, I think this week made things a lot worse. I thought their intervention made things a lot worse. And this is what I fear from what I've been seeing in terms of my Twitter feed and my direct messaging and my emails. People are scared now. And what I'm fearing is that there's going to be a real brain drain. You've got 25% of teachers who may be in either a high-risk situation because of pre-existing conditions or because of age. And a lot of them, if they can, they may just check out and they may say, nobody's taking care of me. I can't go back. I got a parent that I'm taking care of. I have a kid I'm taking care of. I'm pregnant. Who's going to make sure that I'm safe? We need the resources from the HEROES Act. We need real plans. Will things go perfectly? No. But I trust teachers and principals working together with parents using collective bargaining, if we had the safety pillars in place to make a go at having a school year that has some in-person instruction. Randy Weingarten, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Fisker, an electric car maker that announced it will go public via a so-called reverse merger. Why it matters is that there has been a huge surge of public market interest in electric car companies. Tesla stock at one point today was up over $180 per share. And Nikola, an electric truck maker that has never sold an electric truck, last month went public and is now worth more than $20 billion. To get a better understanding of why electric car makers are having a public market moment, we spoke with Fisker CEO Henrik Fisker. I think everybody's dying to see this is actually going to happen. We are going to see huge shifts towards electrification. There's many reasons for that. One is that finally the technology is on par with gasoline vehicles. We are seeing a big push outside the U.S. in Europe and China and Europe specifically on a lot of legislation that's going to drive electrification and that will have an impact. And then I think we have much more charging stations that have been built out. So now you can pretty much charge your vehicle everywhere. And finally, I think coming out of COVID-19, people have had a short glimpse of what the world would look like if you didn't have all these polluting gasoline cars driving around. You guys got a billion dollars in gross proceeds today. You're saying that $1 billion is enough to get you into production? Yes, because we are not planning to build our own factory like a lot of the EV startups are doing. To learn how to manufacture a car is a huge feat and there's so much risk in it. And that's why we're outsourcing our manufacturing. I'm surprised it hasn't really hit the car industry more. Today, we're also watching the number 864 billion. That's the amount of dollars we learned is the federal budget deficit for June. For context, last June, it was just $8 billion. 
In other words, it's been 100 times higher this past month. Now, part of that is because the tax filing deadlines were postponed, but the bigger chunk are economic slowdowns and lockdowns due to the pandemic. Finally, a quick update from last Friday's show, when we noted that Amazon had told its employees to delete TikTok from any device that also accesses Amazon email. That information was based on a note Amazon's IT department sent out about an hour or two before we taped. Then, several hours after we taped, Amazon PR said the IT email was, quote, a mistake and that employees needn't delete TikTok. As for how such a mistake was made or why such an email would have ever been drafted in the first place, well, Amazon PR isn't saying anything about any of that. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National French Fries Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.